This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Hi, I'm Lindsay Fitch from Boulder, Colorado. And I'm Tara Carter from Clovis, New Mexico. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for October 22nd, episode 2295. This episode is brought to you by Horseware. Good morning, Horse World. Good Tuesday morning to you, and I do mean a good Tuesday morning. Well, if you insist on being accurate about it. You know, only somebody with perfect comedic timing could produce this much energy in one shot. You gotta learn that your time in the saddle ain't as rough as the life in between. And we're welcoming Tara back to the Western show. And we're well, I think Lindsay, Lindsay, you've helped on the Western show before. Have you not? I did one interview with Tara and Glenn before. That's I thought so. And you were willing to come back. Oh, wasn't that nice? I know. It was so nice that she would join us. <laughs> She's willing to come back. Well, Tara and now Lindsay are going to be here the fourth Tuesday of each month, and we're going to be talking all things Western performance. We're not going to be dealing too much with the uh, Western pleasure and Western equitation blingy parts of the Western universe, but more of the sport horse kind of stuff that involves cows and ranches and spins and turns and stops and barrel racing and all those kind of good things. And that's going to be on a monthly basis. And that is thanks in part to the good folks at Horseware who are sponsoring this episode. And you have several different segments that you're going to do each month. And the first one uh, involves a little help from Trevor. So why don't we go ahead and get, get started? It's time for the bridle up segment where we're currently going through each of the stages of the Vaquero bridle horse tradition, the snaffle, the hackamore, the two rein and the bridle. We're progressing through the series with Trevor Carter and gaining his insight on the form and function of each tool, how to choose the best fit for you and your horse, and then training tips for using and progressing with each of those tools. So today we're just sort of getting a general overview of the bridal horse. So thanks for joining us, Trevor. We're excited to hear from you, your experiences in the bridal horse tradition and what it means to you and, and how you go about using it in your training program. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what, uh, what does a bridal horse mean to you when someone says, Oh, a bridal horse, what, what does that picture look like? What do you think of? Give us your opinion. To me, if, if you can think of like graduating something like whether it be Kindergarten for some, middle school, or you know, college, and anything that you graduate—that's uh, a really, really unique accomplishment. So, anytime I hear a bridal horse, I think of that. That horse has graduated through all of these unique stages, to where it has an understanding of how to maneuver, how to work. It's got a knowledge of how it can perform in all these maneuvers in different tools. So, to me, it's, it's a graduation process that the horse has earned. 
uh, through his education from the writer. I sort of think of it, my mom and dad sent me to uh, etiquette school, (laughs) like how I had to learn how to set the table and, you know, different things. And so sometimes I think of a bridal horse has kind of gone through their, their etiquette school too. Like they have certain requirements that they've, life skills that they have. You bet. I always think of a well-rounded horse. Like, you know, it bridal horse to me goes in line with a ranch horse. You know, the horse has been through a lot of stages, a lot of tools. It's just got a unique ability to perform. So how did you, I mean, and so Trevor, you grew up in West Texas or actually South Texas, born in West Texas, grew up in South Texas. And is the bridal or something that you see a lot of in Texas or is it in a certain region of the United States or? Like- no, for sure. It's on the West Coast. Um, it's starting to trickle in a little farther east. Um but for the most part, Texas has its culture. If you could just pretty much draw a line from right to the middle of New Mexico, I would call, all the way up through Canada. You know, you, you want to think everything west, that's where the traditions really stem from, from the early Spaniards coming up into California. That, that's where this tradition has really honed its skills. And so, it, you know, not, not to put, you know, categories or titles that's where you're you're really going to find this tradition happen more on the west coast. So so since you're from Texas and it's more of a west coast thing, how did you come into this culture? Like how did you come into the awareness or how did it even have the ability to appeal to you and your training style? So when I went to college, I had a horse that had only been ridden in a hackamore and had 30 rides. Well, I didn't even know what Hackamore was. I didn't know why it was only ridden 30 days, but it was a young horse. And so I went to, luckily, I went to school out in West Texas. And there's a neat store called Big Ben Saddlery. And they had all sorts of gear. And they had this book called Hackamore Rainsman by Ed Cannell. And so, of course, in college, I read everything but my <laughs> textbooks. And so I read this Ed Cannell book and I got, you know, introduced to, you know, because how horses got introduced to the Hackamore. Hakima, you know, that's how they halter broke a lot of horses. They didn't, you know, back in the day, they had to use materials from natural fibers and, you know, they didn't have plastic and whatnot. So uh, their halter was their hackamore. So these horses were trained, they were halter broke with a hackamore and then they were ridden in a hackamore. And then as the horses progressed, uh, they got to be introduced into a bridle. So that was my first book really on horse training, horse education. I had this horse that had only been ridden in a hackamore. I was really the only one riding a horse in a hackamore. So that kind of, you know, made me aware of, hey, if I was the only one doing it, I'd better go figure out more about it because a lot of people didn't really, they couldn't help me. And so by reading that book, it just opened my eyes to what I was in for. And I just created it from then on. It seems kind of like an elusive topic. Like there's a lot of people in the industry around horses that like you can go and take dressage lessons with or you can take cutting lessons with but it doesn't seem like you can very easily find somebody who can just teach you about bridal horses or the type of feel that they have how did you find some of your education or your materials or mentors that you've learned from that helped you learn this so what was really neat about where I went to school is you know we had clinicians come in and so Ray Hunt came in the spring and you know, it, where I went to school, it was a big rodeo school. And so a lot of people ran barrels and they roped and, you know, they rode rough stock. And that was something that, that my skill set wasn't ready for. But, you know, I enjoyed watching it and 
I took a, a run at it and really enjoyed it. But when Ray Hunt came and he had a four-day clinic, you know, he rode his horses in a snaffle. His afternoon horse was in a hackamore. And then the next couple of days, he had this two rein and a bridle setup. So from right there, I started to ask, you know, who else rides like that? You have this gear that I don't see out here. And so he gave me a few references. Uh, Ray's obviously passed on now. Um, but Brian Newbert came out. Joe Walter came out to Alpine. And these guys, they were just unique in their tools that they use. So it, it is tricky about learning about a discipline, much less a tool. So, you know, heavily influenced by ranching where I went to school, you know, I just got to see a lot of different folks and their tools on what they would use. So if they were using hackamores or bridles or certain bridle bits, I just try to gain their knowledge and figure it out and, you know, just take what they had to offer. So, yes, it, it is a, a kind of unique uh, style of writing and it is difficult to find people that are educated in it. Uh, but now the internet and YouTube and, you know, just a lot of influence now has allowed people to get more knowledge on these things. So when you like, sometimes you'll see a horse in a, in a show or in an event or someone will talk about, I use a bit. Is it always like in, as I'm, I'm using a certain kind of bit, a snaffle bit, you know, that's, it's straightforward. And we'll talk more about that in, in future episodes. But when someone says I ride in a bit, does that fall into the same category as a bridal horse? Is it different? Is it the same? Like kind of how do you differentiate or is it, or is there a differentiation? You bet. And so, you know, overall the, the common term of a bit is, you know, something in the horse's mouth and the loose term of a hackamore is something on the horse's nose. So when you, when you dive deeper into, you know, a title, a snaffle bit as a rule has no shanks. So that's an easy way to, I mean, there, there's different kinds of snaffles, you know, like you said, that's, we'll, we'll have tools as a later topic. Um, but you want to think of the loose term. If I ride in a bit, for the most part, the beginning rider, that's probably going to be a snaffle bit. That's a, a very elementary bridle that people can get introduced to. The, the hackamore, like I said, it's something that you ride on the outside of the horse's mouth. So there's, there's different styles of hackamores. They're made out of latigo. Some are made out of rawhide. Some are made out of, you know, horse hair. So different fibers. Um, and then the, when I think of a bridle bit, uh, that, that has shanks that has a curb strap that goes underneath the horse's chin. So that, that has a different mechanism than a snaffle bit. So, so if someone is like, is riding in a bit with a shank, is that necessarily a horse that is a bridle horse? Does it, is you know what I'm trying to say? Like sometimes people go, Oh, well I, I ride my horse in a bridle. I have a bridle horse. Is it the same or is it different or do you know what I'm trying to get at? I, I sure do. And so you want to think of stages. You, sure. Anybody can ride in a bridle yeah. and get along. And a lot of people ride in a bridle for, and I'm generalizing here for the most part, because they were advised that their horse wasn't working in something previous. And so what, what can get out of hand with horses is if, if this isn't working, let's change what the horse is wearing. And for the most part, as you progress, uh, if you just think of a tack room of, or uh, sorry, a tack store of bits, uh, there's a wide range of bits on the wall. And a lot of people try to 
have the bit give them the answer they want with their horse. So when I see somebody riding a certain kind of bit, they can tell you an awful lot about what what is going on, what they might ride that horse for. And again, we're all trying to get educated on how to figure this out. That's why we're having this topic discussion. Um, but when I think of, when, when I see a bridle bit, and that's the thing with, with pictures and us learning more about these, uh, there's, it's a, it's a tool that's used with a signal versus pressure. And so by looking at bits, some bits are designed from a, le- a leverage perspective uh, to provide pressure that the horse must learn to yield. So when I see somebody riding in a bit, you know, y- you can tell on the appearance of the horse, the understanding of the, the reins and the hands and the education of the rider, you can see if that horse has an understanding of the bridal horse tradition. Yeah. So, and I think it'll be something great as we go through this, that it will become easier to differentiate sort of the different traditions or different uh, regions too that adopt different practices and cultures and all of that. So that's our goal is to sort of explore some of the different cultures behind the Vaquero bridal horse tradition and some of the similarities and differences of the different tools and the bits and all of that. So can, can you give us just a short rundown of the progression of it, of like why it starts at a snaffle at what age then it progresses to the next bit or the next tool and why and what age and can you just like give us a short brief kind of text note history of of how that how that works or what that looks like you bet i'll try to keep it as short as i can (laughs) but like i said back you know early on when horses were started when i mentioned the hackamore that's what they use as their halter and so with the function of the tool, that was very widespread. And, and when I think of, you know, when they started horses, when they were four, five, six, and seven, you know, they, they were they were pretty strong. They were they were pretty rank. And so, riding a horse in a hackamore, that really allows you to let that horse's mouth mature. And so, you're staying out of the horse's mouth. Uh, but also, that was a tool that you used to catch them with and to tie them with. So that just kind of was an evolution to ride them in. But as the years progressed, people started having carriage horses and cart horses. And, you know, it's pretty easy to create a snaffle that you can just pull right. And they they give two and they pull left and they give two. And so the snaffle in, in a roundabout way was more introduced because that's a good introductory tool for the uneducated rider. And with, with a hackamore, the way you use it, uh, it can be you know, a little abrupt to the horse so a horse can learn how to ignore it. So with the snaffle, that was the first tool. And usually, you know, nowadays we introduce that uh, to a young horse. You know, we ride from two to three years of age in a snaffle. And then, and then I try to think of it, you know, in the cow horse tradition, it's a showing perspective. So I'll give you a short little story. I know you wanted me to keep this brief. I, I rode a horse in a snaffle until he was five just because I didn't know any better. And I decided to go show him at a, at a show. Well, that show has rules that if this horse was five years of age, it had to be shown in a bridle. So the day I show up to go show this horse, my horse has never been ridden in an actual bridle. But in order for me to participate, I had to advance him in the 30 minutes before the show <laughs> to go to a bridle. So w- what, what gets misread by all this um, – you know, from a show perspective, uh, in the cow horse industry, horses are shown in a snaffle from three years of age to five. 
And you can also show them in a hackamore from four to five. But then after that, they go into a tool called the two rein. And it's a combination of a small hackamore and a bridle bit. So it's the introductory stage of a leverage bit. So these horses are ridden in that two rein their six-year-old year. And so what the two rein allows is your horse has already been educated with a snaffle in its mouth and a horse has already been educated with a hackamore. So by having the two of those on the horse, uh, you can use your hackamore as a reference point if the horse gets confused in a bridle. Uh, but that two rein stage is the introductory stage of putting that bridle in your horse's mouth. So your horse has a reference point with that small hackamore to help him understand what the bridle is. And then six years and up, that horse is mature in the mouth. They've gone through their their shedding of their teeth. Their, their mature teeth are coming in, and therefore, that bridle won't necessarily do any harm. Um, but that horse is now on its way to being strictly just a bridle horse. And that term is called straight up in the bridle, to where it just has the bridle on. It doesn't have a small two rein. And the idea is that you can progress to riding. I mean, you could do ranch work at all of these stages when you're riding two-handed in a snaffle or hackamore, but ideally you're progressing to riding one-handed, and then that helps you better do your ranch work. And Yes, and so, you know, what, what I think of a ranch or a bridle horse, that horse has been allowed to go through the stages of whatever its discipline is, whether it's just working out on the ranch or getting ready for a show or taking care of somebody – riding around, you give that horse the time to understand its job through the tool where, like I said earlier, if some horses are just, you know, gone to a tack store and bought every single bridle, the training then turns into, well, you need a different tool. You need a different bridle. You need more pressure. So with the bridle horse tradition, the evolution by going through these tools allows the horse that understanding. It's like when I when I started this conversation about graduating, this horse has now graduated the snaffle. He's now understood how to do all these certain maneuvers with lightness, with understanding. Let's go try these same maneuvers in a hackamore. And then when the horse can do those same maneuvers with more effort, with less use of the hackamore, now it's time to transition into the two rein. So th this, this style of riding, this progression of tool uh, allows you to feel the horse understand his job without relying heavily on that tool to get it done. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks for the overview of general bridle horse tradition. And we're going to go through and break it down over each quarter. We're going to talk one quarter about the snaffle, one quarter about the hackamore, one quarter about the two rein and one quarter about the bridle. So our next episode, we're going to talk more about the snaffle and its form, its function, you know, kind of how it works. So thanks, Trevor. And uh, if anybody has any questions about the bridal horse tradition in general or uh, the snaffle bit as we're getting ready, please feel free to share those in the in the auditor group and or send them to Horse Radio Network, and we'll do our best to include them. That was a great introduction Trevor just gave us into the bridal horse world, and we're really looking forward to hearing future segments and getting more education about the tools and training tips from him. Before we hear from our next guest, we're going to go ahead and hear from our sponsor at Horseware. 
In the world of horse racing and elite equestrian sports, it's all about how to prepare and repair. IceVibe is a truly portable and highly efficient circulation therapy system for your horse. Before activity, prepare to prevent damage by using the IceVibe's vibration pads. Repair after the event by using the unique combination of cold packs and vibration to minimize swelling and encourage blood flow. And because it's battery powered, IceVibe is truly portable. The essential and affordable tool to prepare and repair. IceVibe. You can find out more details about IceVibe at horseware.com or ask your local tax shop or online supplier for more information about IceVibe Circulation Therapy from Horseware. So when we first talked to the auditors and the listeners about expanding the Western episode, some of the feedback was that they loved hearing about different careers and opportunities within the industry. So not just going out and riding your horse and participating in different disciplines and activities, but actually more on the inside. How can you combine what you what you love with what you do every day for your job or for your career? So when we talked about making this a regular segment, Lindsay said, I have the perfect first guest. So Lindsay, why don't you introduce us to our first guest? Thank you. So our first guest is Joanne Merritt, and she's from Colorado. And when I first met Joanne, I was just fascinated by hearing all of the stories and all of her wisdom about different jobs that she's done within the industry, predominantly sales. And she will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But just hearing all the different companies that she's worked for, where it's taken her, what all she's learned, some of the great people that she's met. And I just thought there'd be nobody better than her to kick off this segment for us for this show. Cool. So Joanne, if you could tell us a little bit about what your official title is or titles, maybe you have several. Uh, well, hello gals. It's uh, my just, I'm in awe of what you said about me. So I sure appreciate that. So uh, my official title, I am um, a large account executive for Kirsten animal wound care products. And um, basically it's a, my job is to get distribution for this. Um, it's a new product uh, on the market. It's been on there about three years. And so my job is to get distribution to basically large accounts, uh, retailers that uh, have more than one store. But I do do more than that as far as go to trade shows. And we do pick up the, the mom and pop stores that have the really quality, nice wound care section. So that's that's currently what I'm doing now. And so how long have you been working for that company? It's new to the so new I, to the market three years, but. That's right. So I, I started when they um, went out looking for, when they had all their testing done and knew that this product was um, proven to do what we said it was going to do. That's when they brought me on and uh, from the very start. So since I had some experience with retailers across the United States and mainly, um, mainly west of the Mississippi, but had some experience there. So uh, they brought me on to develop the develop the distribution on the products. And uh, I also do some product expansion, some testing, and we do some some new new products coming out as well that is is it in that market is in need of. So mainly wound care. Uh, we have an organic fly repellent called Bodyguard. So really great products, um, all natural and very effective. Since this is a new position that you've just recently done in the last three years, what is your background in some of your other previous sales jobs or distribution jobs or different things like that? 
Well, I started off uh, right out of college, started off uh, working at a a retailer called Western Implement in Grand Junction, Colorado. And I went in at a, at a very ground floor level position, um, pretty much on the floor with sales. And it worked up into being a assistant buyer. And then it worked into being a buyer, both for wound care, animal care products, leather goods, and clothing. So that's that was back um, decades ago <laughs> when I was 21. So that's where it really developed. And then um, uh, got got married and um, started having kids. So that, that kind of changed a little bit for me there, but that was really the opening to let me see uh, on, on a buyer's end what it took to uh, buy products on. So you have a sales end and then I was on the buying end at that time. So my husband also worked for Wrangler jeans at that time. So we attended the uh, Western English and apparel markets uh, around mainly in uh, Denver in January. And that was, that's a that's a place that is just fascinating. Uh, any of your listeners, um, if they have an opportunity to research that a little bit, great job opportunities there. All aspects of sales and marketing in the Western industry there. So I did that, and then um, started having kids. So I kind of went back to my my ground floor floor roots, which was uh, riding colts and uh, starting young horses. While I was also raising colts, my kids, <laughs> and so uh, did that yeah. when uh, when <laughs> when that was available. So um, my expertise there was zero to 60 days. So did a lot of, of um, continued training, uh, my own horses and outside horses as well. So did that, uh, continued going to clinics, continued trying to perfect my craft there and uh, tr- trying to just be a better horseman uh, overall. And so as the kids got raised, we had a ranch and we, we did all that. And my husband the whole time was working for Wrangler and he was an account executive for them, um, handling large chain accounts and doing uh, marketing and, and sponsorships and endorsees and things like that. So all that was always in our life. And uh, he's, he's, a real, uh, he's a real incredible person as well. He, he has in-depth knowledge of the industry as well. So I... Uh, kind of got to pick his brain as we were going through life. And then as the kids went through high school and college, um, I had time back on my hands again to start um, that my career back up in, in sales. And so I started work for Montana Silversmith. And I had a pretty large territory for them. I had California, uh, Southern Nevada, Southern Utah, and Arizona, and traveled with Montana Silversmith. Great company, great, great reputation in the industry in sales there. So that was really the basis, and I worked for them for five years, and uh, then I had the opportunity with Kirsten. And I, I really wanted to get into a startup. Montana was really an established company, and uh, it just kind of became a little bit um, saturated market there. So I wanted to make some changes and, and uh, get a little more challenge in my life, <laughs> and, and that's the direction I took. So can I ask you to help just explain it a little bit, Joe? For ex- example, I went to the West, the Wisa market, I guess maybe three years ago, and it really opened my eyes to the different levels within the industry because I consider myself really just a consumer of the products and services in the Western industry or in, any, in the horse industry in general, really. Right, right. So when I went to the market, I thought, Okay, I you know I thought oh, well if I if I'd like a pair of jeans or if I'd like something I go to the store or I go online to a retailer, but I didn't even realize that there were these, there was a market 
where the retailer went to go to see what, you know, like where they did their shopping to then set up their stores where the consumer could do their shopping. So is there sort of a, a structure that you could share with our listeners that just sort of explain kind of the different layers from manufacturer to wholesaler to retailer and where you fit within that? Could you just kind of give us a, the lay of the land if that is even possible? Sure. Sure. Yep. So if, if you go into a, a retailer store, you, you look around and boy, they got a lot of stuff on the shelves. And, and if you really do get into depth on how they, how they find those products and products that they want to carry, that's where they have to, they have to find an avenue to go. And, and these markets are, are one of those avenues to go. So when you go in there, that is the, the manufacturers mainly, they set up booths, and then each retailer goes around and they have their places they go, depending on what kind of store, if it's a clothing store, a, a multi-item store. And they go around and they'll spend several several days, and it's long days, and they have uh, open to buy. So they have a certain amount of dollars they can spend. And uh, they they try to reorder existing products that sell well. And they also try to find new innovative products that are new to the market and and then they'll bring them in. It's all based on shelf space. It's all based on their open buy, and uh, and kind of what their their consumer has been asking for during the year, and what they know is hopefully is going to work, and uh, keep keep them afloat, and and keep having existing customers come back and new customers come in. So that's that. So if you're if you're looking at from uh, the ground floor floor level, you know you you develop a product and or you have an existing product. And um, whether it's American made, it's some of it's brought in from from overseas, and uh, you you get a line and you get a uh, a catalog full of products that you know that are you know in have a good variation, and you bring that to the market. So you, as let's say Curison, for example, we have a broad spectrum uh, type of products that try try to address different issues that consumers are facing, and then you also try to to price it according so everybody can make some money. Um, it's a, it's appealing to the retailer and it, they can turn around and they can mark it up and, and make some profit on it because a lot of those profits um, are pretty low on, let's say, feed on some animal health care products, uh, not making very much margin there. So, you know, we try to make it so, as far as Kirsten's standpoint, we try to make them healthy because we feel if the, if the retailer's healthy and they're carrying a quality product, then we too, as, as Kirsten, as a company will be healthy. So, um, you know, there's a lot of balls in the air and trying to juggle it and uh, make it work for everybody. And when you go to the market, that's what you do. When you stand up there and sell it, you, you try and let them know what you got and how it will benefit their business and, and in turn benefit the consumer. So it's a, it's a long process and, and a lot goes into it. But, uh, when you are looking for like employment, you know, there, there's every single step along that along that chain and, and, and not, I would tell people, don't be afraid to get in on a ground floor um, opportunity either. Cause if you work hard and you get knowledgeable and you could, you could build yourself up because it's, it's pretty easy to be impressive um, in the workforce. If you work hard and you, and you, you know, really have a passion for something. So anywhere along this chain, you can jump in and, uh, and make a career out of it. And that was very helpful and information and informative. Thank you. Um, how did you learn 
learn all the skills that you use on a daily basis with all the list of background of jobs that you've done and now what you do at your job now. Was that something that you went to school for? Was that something that you just jumped in and you had those skills because you were, those are your innate talents? Could you tell us a little bit about like how you develop the skills you have now to be successful in the business that you're in? Well, some of it is the school of hard knocks, um, you know, making some mistakes and learn from those mistakes. But, but I'm a real, uh, I, I believe that if you uh, work in a, in an area where you're passionate about and you um, have maybe some personal knowledge as far as say, as far as animal wound care, you know, I told you I was breaking colts and, and have personal horses and outside horses. Well, you, you run into some issues and you, you need some wound care. So you try different products. And, and you know some things that work and some things that don't work. So that's where the trial and error comes in. I also did a lot of study on um, understanding the fundamentals of, you know, how bacteria works, how wounds um, can be healed, proud flesh, different things that, are, that go, go along with the animal wound care industry. So there's both involved, ask a lot of questions, and I uh, have some trial and error. But um, as far as the Kearson, it, it just kind of fell right in. You know, early on, I wanted to uh, be a, a vet, and sure didn't have the money and the and the, the backing to do that at the time. So this is kind of just the next progression for me. I've always been interested in that, and that's that's something I can tell somebody: if you've got an interest in it, you will be good at it. You know, as far as taking it for a career, whether it's in sales, it's in marketing, it's at a ground floor. If you have a passion for it, find what your passion is, and that's what you go after. And that's what mine was. Mine was definitely the the equine industry. Um, the Western industry, and it's pretty easy to be passionate about something when you love it and you and you're happy to do it every day. You've talked to us a lot about about that passion and just that is your driving force behind what you do at home, away from work, and also what you do at work. What are some of the challenging aspects of this lifestyle and this uh, job that you carry? Well, all along, you know, you're. Um, if you're in sales, you're you're constantly trying to um, not only not only continue your your market um, your shelf space that you've developed. You you have resale and sales, but you're also trying to develop new because you have to have growth. And as far as a challenge, you know you have to you have to think outside the box, and you have to find new ways to grow your business. Especially when I was working with an established business like Montana Silversmiths. You know, there's X amount of shelf space involved for that. So you you have new things coming up. I was involved with a lot of product development there and a, as I am um, with Kirsten. So that's that's something that's a challenge, always trying to come up with new things that, that the consumer needs or wants. Uh, as far as Montana, that was an impulse buy. That was not a necessity as far as jewelry. So you're always hoping to, you know, turn somebody's head on something they'd like when you're looking at Kirsten. Uh, animal wound care. Not a lot of people carry wound care in their barn until they have, until they have a situation where they need it. So you need to have good labeling. You need to have a great product. You need to be able to catch a consumer's eye, and have them pick your product over other products. And so that's always a challenge. And I think that's a challenge for any company to when when you're a consumer walks into a store and they've got a lot of choices. Why would they choose you? And so that's always been a challenge. And continually growing, uh, making your products better, and not just sit with the status quo and be happy with what you got. Always be challenged. And I go back again to having a passion for something 
when you look around, when you're living, when you're living the lifestyle and you're wearing the products or you're using the products, you, you get a pretty good understanding of, of where things are lacking, where there's holes in the industry that you'd like to fill. So that's, that's a real big challenge. And it's a fun challenge for me. I've, I've always looked forward to finding new and better ways. And, and I, I go back to the passion. If, if you like what you're doing every day, it's not a job, it's, it's enjoyment. And that would be my biggest advice to anybody looking in the industry is, you know, if you like it, you'll like it every day. <laughs> That's great advice. Also, so with that said of following your passion and then just always kind of looking for, for that niche of where there needs to be an improvement or where you're really trying to problem solve, maybe where some of um, some areas are where you're trying to grow, whether that's for on the industry side of the consumer side or the production side for you. Who have been some of your biggest influences and why? Well, um, starting early on, it was obviously my dad. Um, he was a great horseman. He too was a real innovator, always looking for a better way um, uh, to train a horse, to ride a horse, to to a cow, uh, better ways to have production. He was always that kind of person as well and uh, never scared of a challenge. It was just awesome growing up with him. And uh, then moving on with my husband, I married. Um, we've been married 31 years, and he too is just super energetic, positive person, always moving forward and looking forward to a, a, a great life and a better way to make that life good. And, and so those two people have just been outstanding in my life. I'm really, really blessed to have those two men in my life. And, and my mom was great, real positive person as well. So going through that, my home life has been very supportive. And, and I, I couldn't ask for anything better. Pretty lucky person there. Feel blessed. As far as um, mm-hmm. my, my business world, uh, I've run across some, some of the people. Judy Wagner at Montana Silversmith, there's no better there. She's a fascinating person as well someone that you would probably enjoy talking to. She, she has, that gal is, is fascinating and, and goes along the same lines, very positive, very um, innovative, just a great person. And she's just incredible, been a blessing in my life. And then I'm with Kirsten, uh, John Stewart, who um, started the company. He, he is truly a nuclear uh, scientist and he, he's a developer of things. He developed a, a coverall, uh, for the nuclear industry that dissolves. And, um, so there's not so much waste in the industry. And, and then he, fa- he found this product, Kirsten, that a guy was selling out of the back of his pickup, uh, in milk jugs and went to testing it, found out what a fat, what a, just a fantastic product it was. And just, he developed it and moved it into the market. So there's three people that have just been just stellar in my life. And, and I, and I go back to people that are positive, uh, that you can learn from, not, not afraid to help you. And, uh, I've been very, very blessed in that regard. Wow. That's, that's really neat. You've met some really amazing people. Is there, I'm like in all your travels, cause you've been many, many places and met many people. What is one of the most memorable experiences in all of your travels with someone that may have been like famous that you have met or, you know, maybe just one of those stories like you would tell people like your friends or family on your Thanksgiving dinner of just uh, unforgettable <laughs> experience you've had in your oh, life. Oh, golly. Um, I guess I could say a kind of a funny one. We were at a market in uh, in Las Vegas and um, Arnold Schwarzenegger came by and 
he was, uh, he's not a real big guy. You'd think he would be a real big guy, but you saw these two great big guys come by and then here comes, here comes Arnold by and, and he's kind of just looking at <laughs> our Montana silversmith buckles and, and, uh, I'm trying to visit with him and, and he's very friendly and very nice. And, and, uh, <laughs> as he walked off, I said, will you be back? And oh, everybody just got a big old kick. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, very original. Oh, way to go there. And then he came back around and visited with us a long time. And, and we had a really good, a really good chat about that. But um, that was pretty fun. And, uh, you know, some things business wise, I, I actually had a horse that I, t- I tell this story all the time with Kirsten, but I had a really nice highbrow cat, a horse that had uh, white hind feet and legs. And he had a terrible case of scratches. And that's a, that's a multifaceted bacterial um, issue that horses get and it's very hard to cure and it's also called greasy heel and some other things but um I was just I was just crying the blues one day with a guy named Tanner Bryson down in Arizona and he was on he's also on the ground floor with Kirsten and uh he just handed me a whole armful of samples and said here here try this this will work you do this and this will work and I tried everything and I go okay whatever so I went home (laughs) and I I, I put it on there and I wrapped it with plastic and I just really, and I took it off that next day and all the scabs were gone and, and there was pink skin under there and it was, and he wasn't as sore and, and it, I'm just going, wow. So I did it every day for like three days. And within, within four days I had all the scabs were gone. The skin was healthy. And within a week I had hair growth and it never came back. And I'd been fighting it for a couple of years. He'd be in and out of lameness. And so I called up Tanner and I said, Hey, I got to sell this stuff. I want to be a part of this. This is, this is fascinating stuff. So that's how I got in with Kirsten. I just, I just by chance run across a guy that, you know, that said, here, try this. And I did. And and that's how I got involved with Kirsten. And so just, just, it was just luck, you know, timing. So I'm pretty, pretty blessed there, but I've, we traveled a lot of miles with Montana silversmiths and that, that was another thing that traveling alone as a female, I kind of, I kind of got a little bit tired of the road um, after after a few years uh, being by myself. But um, other than that, it was a, I got to see places and meet people that just the Western industry has nothing but grand people. They're just very willing to to visit and op- open up to you. It's just once again been very blessed with the people I've met in my life. Mm-hmm. And what about how do you keep going with your career and your horses? I think it's always fun to to learn and also inspiring to hear how people still, you know, maintain their career, whether it's in the horse industry or otherwise, and still keep up with their horse discipline. So what do you do when you ride your horse and how do you balance that with your career? Well, I, I can tell you, um, we team rope. So, um, I rope a lot of steers, uh, behind the windshield as I'm driving down the road in my mind, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of mental practice. And, and that also makes the miles go by, you know, you, you chase a lot of steers and I never miss when I'm driving. I just, <laughs> I, just I catch every single one. So, and then when you, when you get home, you know, you have to have purposeful practice. You have to have a plan when you go out there and, and, uh, you know, take advantage of your, your, your time, your, your minutes, your hours that you have to do that. And I'm also blessed with people who understand knowing going in that, um, you know, this is my release and, and this is something that I'm, I'm an ultra competitive person. So, you know, I, I don't like to lose. So I, I take my dummy with me on the road and, uh, and I rope it every night out in the parking lot of the hotel and then, and enjoy my time there. And, uh, uh, just, 
purposeful practice, you know, real, real plan practice, have a plan when you go out there. And, and then once again, that'll carry on to your competitive nature. But, um, you know, I don't do the Colts as much as I used to, I have, have more of established, uh, horses that, you know, don't, don't need as much practice. We can, can just keep them in shape. And I have some people that help me with that. And, and that's just, that's just kind of the, how it has developed in my life. But, uh, just have your quality horses that you, you know, are going to be there for you. And, and it's pretty easy to balance it that way. And I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't spend a lot of time uh, sitting around. So, you know, every, every minute is useful and I'm a breast cancer survivor. I've been, uh, I've been eight years, um, cancer free. So I, I feel, I feel pretty blessed to have every day above ground. And so I think that's another thing that's helped me in my life. Um, enjoy every single day because tomorrow's not guaranteed. So, um, move forward with positive attitude and, and enjoy every day. Mm. That's wonderful. Thank, thank you, Joe, for sharing that. And for, you can very much hear how much it's important to have a positive attitude and, uh, keep your keep your eyes on the horizon so we loved hearing what you had to share about what you do and your outlook on the industry and in life in general where can folks find out more about curison the company that you're working with well it's uh we have a great website curison.com it's c-u-r-i-c-y-n.com all the products and explanations of our story and where we've been and how to get the product is on there and uh that's that's just a great resource as well to kind of understand, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people have the issues that Kirsten can solve. So uh, go on there and there's great information and the product is value priced and it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful product and a broad spectrum of types of products to, depending on what issue you're trying to resolve. So there's also a a non-toxic organic fly repellent in there with used with essential oils that really does work. So if you're if you're not wanting to put the chemicals on your horse, um, spray it on yourself as well because we know that the overspray happens. So that's another uh, product that's a great product called Bodyguard. So go on that website and uh, you can get about all the knowledge you need on our products. Thank you so much for coming on today and visiting with us, Joe. It was great to hear some insight into what your job positions have been and how you keep things rolling with your horses at home and your goals and your lifestyle and we just really appreciate it and we'll hope to have you back well i sure appreciate it as well and you girls are great and uh i wish you all the best with your podcast what a great opportunity for people to learn and have expanded knowledge on the western industry what a fascinating career she's had thus far and it it kind of sounds like she's going to keep right on going. And while I get our next guest on the line here, why don't we take a break and have a little Viva La Cowboy with Dan Roberts. All right, all you cowboys and cowgirls, I really need your help singing the chorus on this one. It's called Viva La Cowboy. I hear a lot of talk about him dying. They're calling him a vanishing breed. They sing them sad songs about how he's come and gone As if he's faded into history Well, I can tell you something for certain Yeah, one thing that I know for a fact They ain't exactly dropping the curtain On a way of life that's way intact So Viva the Cowboy Long live his kind it's to the ranchers and the wranglers and the rodeo hands And all the generations standing in line They can roll with the punches 
Hey, they can weather the change So viva the cowboy He's still got a home on the range And pickup trucks are still hauling hay They keep on raising the bar in the PBR And there's thousands in the PRCA You won't find them on the endangered species They ain't protected anywhere that I know And they're still making them as tough and as bronchy As it did when the buffalo rolled Hey, viva the cowboy Long live his kind Here's to the ranchers and the wranglers And the rodeo hands And all the generations standing in line They can roll with the punches And they can weather the change So viva the cowboy He's still got a home on the range God help me out here now Viva the cowboy Long ladies kind yeah. Here's to the ranchers and the wranglers And the rodeo hands And all the generations standing in line They can roll with the punches Hey, they can weather the change So viva the cowboy He's still got a home on the range Yeah, viva the cowboy Party time. You can find Dan Roberts' music at danroberts.net. You can also go to CD Baby. And now, on with the show. What do you got going for us next, Tara? Well, we wanted to expand the Western episode. A lot of the auditors and the listeners said, we'd love to learn more about in-depth of each of the disciplines. So, you know, what's the what's the real difference between reining or trail or reining or cow horse or, you know, all, all fill in the blank. What, how do you determine the difference? Because maybe you just like to learn more about it, or maybe you would like to actually pick one to choose to explore more in depth yourself with your horse. So what we want to talk about in these segments are the different disciplines, the rules of the sport, the associations, but really our favorite part is choosing a competitor and following along with them as they continue to get better at the sport themselves. So when we first decided that we would start with Rain Cowhorse, Lindsay said, I have the perfect guest. So Lindsay, <laughs> would you like to introduce your guest to us today? Yes. So this is Kelly Buckley. She lives in our area here in Colorado. And from what I know, she just recently started showing in the Rain Cow Horse for this year as her first year. And I thought it would be really, really fascinating to hear what, 
is her other competitive background prior to this? What's led her to change sports and try this new sport? And then what's what's the journey like while she's on while she's learning this new sport? So thanks for joining us today, Kelly. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into horses just in general. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Um, I grew up in Colorado. I'm a Colorado native. Um, when my parents have always been into horses, um, I kind of started out when I was younger doing all around um, so Western Pleasure, Halter, all of that stuff. Um, I, uh, Lori uh, Krause at the time and now who is Lori Lucas, um, is who actually taught me how to ride. So I would do like Greeley Saddle Club and so forth, which was awesome. And um, I feel like a lot of my balance and um, just general horse knowledge came from her. So that's always um, great, I guess. Um, but then... When I was about eight years old, my parents got into reining and, um, we, our trainers at the time and still are, are Steve and Dory Schwarzenberger out of Longmont, Colorado. And, um, they're actually really good family friends. Um, their daughter, Sherry Schwarzenberger, who is training reining horses now is actually my best friend. So reining has definitely been my major background. So since I've been eight years old, that is pretty much what I've done. Um, about 10 years ago, my dad got into reining cow horse and loved it. Um, just kind of really took off all of that stuff. Um, so yeah, it's kind of taken till this last year and I finally had an opportunity to get a new horse, um, kind of on a whim and have decided that I want to really pursue the reining cow horse. So yeah. Okay, so so let's just start with, for those who don't know, can you tell us what enta- is entailed in reining cow horse? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, how, about, how about the basics? Like you're the basic, hey, what's reining cow horse? And then you could say, well, here's the things that I do in reining cow horse. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So um, it's kind of the, I would say kind of the basis of it is reining. So um, it's considered kind of a three event sport. Um, people come in and you are judged on a reining pattern. Um, the cow horse reining patterns are just a little different than say the national reining cow or national reining horse associations are, um, they're a little bit simpler, but they want to see more of what a horse can do on the ranchy side of things, I would say. Um, so you're judged on that. That's one event in it. Then the second event is your, um, herd work. So that's going to be kind of the cutting aspect of it. And then your third event is the fence work, which is kind of what riding cow horse is known for. So, um, you're just in the pen with one cow, they let it out, you box it on one end, and then you take it down the fence and you have to circle it both directions as well. So those are kind of the very brief overview of what the, uh, three events are in the sport. Um, however, like for people like me that are just getting into it, they have a few different classes that kind of introduce you to the cow horse world and, um, they're considered like a box only or limited class. So you do a reigning pattern. And then at the same time, when you complete the reigning pattern, you call for a cow, 
you let it out and you can box it at one end. And it just kind of helps you, especially a lot of like the rainers per se that are transitioning into the sport, kind of get a feel for how to do everything at a slower pace, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so what caused you to choose, like, so if you've got your background in reining, what made you decide to try cow horse? Like what about it appealed to you? So, um, kind of the, the ranchy aspect of it, to be honest, you know, it takes, you have to have a really good eye for a cow. You know, you got to be able to read a cow really well. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a thinking sport, you know, you can't just, you can have a horse that's really good at reining, but he might not be great at one of the other events. And most horses are that way. I mean, they they excel at one of the events in the sport and then the other one, it might not be as great, but it's kind of fun in that aspect to help them through that process and, you know, learn, like you really got to ride with everything you have, I guess, is my point. Um. <laughs> <laughs> And so, Kelly, you just said that you found a new horse this year to go out and compete in the sport. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, he is, his name is NBR, another lucky hit. Um, his bar name is called Junk, um, and because he eats everything in front of him. Um, <laughs> but he is a six-year-old Palomino gilding. Uh, he actually is, um, his sire is pale-faced on it, which is Colonel Smoking Gun, which, um, as most people know, is from Gunner. So, um, on his sire side, not necessarily known to be the most cowiest, but um, actually his dam side is goes back to uh, top sail whiz and gray starlight. So he definitely has a little bit of it in him. Um, kind of roundabout way, a little background on him. Um, he was started by Casey Deary as a three-year-old. And then um, as a four-year-old, Bub Poplin in Colorado, who is another reining trainer, got him. So his background also is very much just reining. Um, my mom was looking for a horse about two years ago and found him on Facebook, kind of on a whim, and went and tried him, loved him. They bought him for her. And she tried him for a little while, um, just didn't really get along with him. He's kind of a lot of horse. Um, he is very lucky and so forth and he definitely sees everything around him. So, um, she was wanting a little something simpler that just kind of goes in there and does its job and so forth. So in that process, um, I had a horse at the time that, um, a three-year-old at the time that I was going for the reigning fraternities on. And so I didn't really have time for him. So they, he kind of got lost is my point. Um, and they kind of let him sit for a little while. They sent him out to Chris Anderson actually last year. Um, and he started healing on him and he was going to take him to the rope horse maturity. Um, and that just kind of, that didn't end up happening. And so we brought him home and we were trying to figure out what to do with him. Well, long story short, um, I sold my, well, I sold my four-year-old now. Um, not too long ago and I needed a horse. So I kind of took him over and, um, I started riding with Jim and Jill cook out of Erie, Colorado, and just kind of started. We were learning cow horse together is my point. So he's never really done the whole cow horse thing and neither have I. So it's kind of a process in itself. <laughs> <laughs> so how, 
how does he so like if raining's his background but watchy like do you see do you does he show you that he has a natural tendency to watch a cow or like what what kinds of things are you thinking well yeah this this might be the right direction for us together yeah absolutely he um he definitely watches a cow a lot he um he gets a little lost i mean coming from the roping background helped him a lot but he also is like not sure where his position is totally supposed to be just yet um so that's been kind of a fun little adventure that we've you know training adventure i guess you would say um with him but he definitely i've been very surprised that he has taken to it as well as he has um he loves it to be honest he watches cows great um and if we can get his feet work going a little bit better i mean i think he'll be i think he'll excel in the sport really well so have you, do you have any short-term goals, long-term goals with him? Absolutely. So kind of a short-term goal that I have for him um, is I, I would love to start going down the fence, but um, both of us are just like, we do it at practice. Um, we're just not really there yet. And so one of my big goals is hopefully um, getting him qualified for the cow horse world show which, um, is usually at the beginning of each year. So I'll go all next year, get him qualified for that in the box only limited class. So, um, and then my whole point is to hopefully go down to Fort Worth and compete at the world show and try to buy for that title, I guess. <laughs> so when you say that you're thinking about going down the fence, so, when people when people first get started in cow horse, they typically mm-hmm. just do the the boxing piece, which is it's slower. You don't have the the higher speeds. You don't have the higher turns at speeds or the circling. And and we'll talk more about you know in in one of the episodes, kind of the different pieces where you go down the fence and boxing. But how do you? What are you looking for? Um, what's making you comfortable? To say, okay, either I'm ready to go to the next level, which would be down the fence, or Chunk is ready to go down the fence. Like, what what are the things that you're looking to check off before you make that decision? Absolutely. I think that it definitely comes from, it's kind of, well, it's a good mixture of both, to be honest. Um, he, He needs a little bit more training as far as just kind of his positioning on a cow. Um, Because when you start going down the fence, I mean, there's a lot that can go wrong very quickly. Um, That's why it's, you know, a lot of people that do this sport, it's, that's the one event that kind of keeps people away from it, but also drives them to it. If that kind of is relatable at all, it's, um, when you go, when you start going down the fence, you have to have a horse that a can read a cow knows to keep its shoulders up, you know, goes with that cow and is really good on its, on his feet. Um, so we're still kind of in the process of training him how to get under himself and know to kind of like Jill cook tells me all the time, you know, get him on his butt, get him on his butt. So as a rainer, they, a lot of times they're trained to kind of be up and correct and, forward, if you will. So, hmm. um, cow horse is a lot different. I mean, you want a horse that's on his butt and using that as his balance point. Um, and so you kind of want them to really be comfortable with that before you start taking them down the fence. And then same thing with me, 
me, um, just, you know, getting me more comfortable reading a cow and so forth. There's all those things that go into it, um, before you really want to start showing that event. Since this is a new sport to both you and your horse, can you talk to us about like learning how to read a cow? Like, what does that process look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I kind of always thought that I have read cows decently. I mean, I've grown up around cows and moved cows and all of that good stuff. Um, as far as kind of showing it, I mean, you're going to have, like I said, the, the, when you're boxing a cow versus when they're in the herd, it's a lot different situation. So, um, when you bring a one out to kind of box or take down the fence, they're in the pen by themselves. So they're going to be, if you have a good cow, um, they're going to move pretty quickly. And it's just really staying like with cow horse, you really want to stay, um, as if the cow is at the end of the arena and you're trying to box it, you, I was always told that if you flip that arena to be vertical, that cow should always fall right on top of you and you should be able to catch that cow. So in that sense, that's how I've kind of been learning my positioning is to really stay. You want to stay with like eye to eye. So your horse's eye and that cow's eye together. Um, and it's trickier than I guess what it sounds all the time, but um, that's kind of the process of that I've been taught how to read a cow. Um, but then also kind of, you know, thinking ahead on that cow too, like, um, kind of trying to figure out where that cow is going to go next instead of just always trying to think right with it. Um, so that's kind of the process when it's, when you're kind of bring it out on its own for the box and taking it down the fence, as far as the herd work goes, they're a little bit calmer and you want to keep them calm. So kind of teaching your horse to walk through a herd and not be nervous or scared or, you know, kind of rile the, uh, the herd up is always very important. And then also the herd work is very tricky as far as cutting a cow out and figuring out which cow is going to be good and which one to take and all of that. So, um, there's just a lot to it as far as really staying in tune with your horse and that cow. It's funny when I hear people say about reading a cow, I'm always thinking, man, how do, how do you explain this? And when I heard you say catch, when you would, like, would turn the, I thought that was a great analogy of you're going to turn the arena. And then if the cow was to fall, you would be able to catch it. And so when I think about reading a cow, I actually think of it. If, if you would say to someone, okay, you see that horse out there in the pasture, he's hard to catch. Could you go catch him? Like you have to, you have to start thinking about reading the horse, um, take, making sure you get your angles so that you could put him in the right place of the pin to maybe approach him more quickly or, you know, more directly. So when I think about, uh, reading a cow, if I could say to someone who is, has not worked cattle before, I would say, think about trying to catch a horse that's hard to catch in a pasture. Like those are kind of the things. Yes that you try to do with a cow. But, but then I think about the whole down the fence thing. It's like, okay, so we're going to let this horse out into an arena mm-hmm. cow, and you're going to try to catch it on the end of the arena or at least get it to face you. Right. Yep. And then, and then when you do, you're going to run it to the other end and see if you can catch it again. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> which, which actually kind of makes no sense. So, exactly. Uh, but it's really fun. So you should try it, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, mo- and most importantly, hang on. Oh, yes. Yeah. That is true. Because there are so many things that can go wrong, but it is such an adrenaline rush. It's so much fun. So have you competed already? Or are you just learning or are you have you started competing? I have started competing. So this year, um, like I said, I kind of got in late this summer um, and just kind of been going to the local shows. So um, I went to like Loveland, Colorado, Estes Park, Colorado, um, and Montrose, which is on the other side of the mountains, um, and kind of competed this year. We did end up, um, we won the limited class um, in Montrose. So that was a pretty cool, um, I guess deal for us. And then, um, we've done really well. So it's kind of same thing. We'll probably do the same thing this next year and kind of just stay in the box. Like I said, and try to get qualified for the world show. And I think he just needs another year under his belt. And, um, then we'll, then we'll start doing the fence work. What were your biggest takeaways from what um, one of those shows that you just noted, what was like your biggest strength or weakness or something that you learned or, you know, even something funny just since it's new and maybe stressful going and trying something new that you're learning and competing and entering? Um, it is the most humbling sport. I will say that <laughs> the minute you <laughs> think you're kind of good, <laughs> it's very humbling. Um, but we definitely, I would say our strengths are for sure raining. Um, and, but it's tricky because the raining is a little bit different and they want to see, they want to see a little bit different aspects. Like I said before, um, in what the cow horse raining is. So for instance, like the difference between the raining, raining and cow horse raining is they kind of want to see you be quicker. So there's no rollbacks in cow horse raining like there is in regular. And they want, when you do your spins at the, after you stop or do your sliding stop, they want you to do those quickly. Like there's, whereas there's a lot of like pausing and waiting for your horse in NRHA raining. They don't want to see that in the cow horse. They want to see you like get the job done, get your spins done quickly, you know, run to the other side of the arena and kind of like you would on a ranch, you know, you're not waiting around, like letting your horse catch his breath (laughs) kind of deal. You're going to work. So that's kind of the biggest takeaway I've learned from it. Um, thank you so much for coming on today, Kelly. We look forward to keeping track of your journey over the next few episodes and finding out more about how your training at home's going, what you're learning and how things are going, working towards your goal of of qualifying to the world show. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for having me as well. In this month's Congrats and Coming Up, we wanted to highlight some of the great events that have been going on and some of those that are on the horizon. Uh, They had the Brandeman Pro-Am Vaquero Roping this past weekend. They've only been able to post results from their muley roping, but congrats to Danny Leslie and Cole Burton. 
And of course, the huge NRCHA Snafflebit Futurity concluded in their finals this weekend. Uh, the open champion was Here Comes the Moon and Lance Johnston for Rocking BS Ranch. Lance was also the intermediate open champion with Here Comes the Boon. And fun fact, we had him on an episode about a year ago uh, where he won the uh, Protect the Harvest Spade Philly. So you can go back and listen to Lance before he was the Snafflebit Futurity Champion. And then the limited open champion was TRR, Lucky Brazos, and Trip Townsend for Trip Townsend and Kyle Brewer. Uh, and actually, we've had Trip and his son trail on the show before. So you can say you knew them when. And then the level one limited open champion, 16 Carat Cat and Jeffrey Sheehan for the Beach Fork Ranch. And then the non-pro champions, the non-pro champ was Duel in a Little Time and Debbie Crafton, intermediate non-pro, as well as the novice non-pro went to CR Tough Guns and Roses and Abby Phillips. And the amateur champion was Bet He's Got Style and Amy Lund. At the snaffle bit this year they also had two really cool events that they've not done before one was the cowboy class and that actually went to a cowgirl this year kit kat jerry and kelsey thomas and they hosted cow horse for cutters so those who are in the cutting discipline actually came and tried their hand at uh at rain cow horse and some of them thought they were doing boxing but they actually went down the fence and then now we've announced the nfr finalists so um, you can check this out. We'll post the link, but they announce all the top 15 that make it at each event. But we're just going to highlight those that, that are the number one leading going into the into the NFR. So in the all-around, they have Stetson Wright from Milford, Utah, Bearback, Clayton Biglow from Clements, California, Steer Wrestling, Ty Erickson, Helena, Montana, Team Roping Headers, Clay Smith, Broken Bow, Oklahoma, Team Roping Healers, Junior Nagara, Lipan, Texas, Saddle Bronc, Rider Wright, Beaver, Utah, Tie Down Roping, Caleb Smith, and actually a guy from Clovis, New Mexico, right where we live, uh, is Shad Mayfield. He's sitting 13th. Steer Roping, Trevor Brazil from Decatur, Texas, Bull Riding, Sage Kimsey, who is leading it by a long ways from Strong City, Oklahoma. And then coming up this month, uh, just this following weekend, we've got the Stock Horse of Texas World Show in Abilene, Texas, October 25th through 27th. The Working Ranch Cowboy Association is having their World Championship Ranch Rodeo November 7th through 10th in Amarillo, Texas. And for those of you who like to compete at the Fort Worth Stock Show and, Ro Show and Rodeo, Horse Show deadline is coming up November 15th. We loved having all of our guests on the show today to talk about being involved in the industry, not just from the back of a horse, uh, learning about getting involved in a new discipline. And we're looking forward to learning more about Ring Cow Horse over the next few episodes. And then starting to dive into the topic of the bridal horse tradition. So we're very grateful to all of our guests for joining us. You can find links to today's guests and the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. And you can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store, search Horse Radio Network. And if you missed a live show, you can still listen to the recorded version on our website, our affiliate websites, or iTunes. You never need to miss an episode. Thank you to our sponsors, Horseware. See you next month. 